Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Claire Carlisle. She is reader in philosophy and theology at King's College, London. She's the author of On Habit and a contributor to the Times Literary Supplement and The Guardian. Today's topic is a new biography of Soren Kierkegaard. It's called Philosopher of the Heart, The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard. Claire, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. Well, I, I read the book all day yesterday. I finished it this morning, Claire. I, 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 felt, the, I felt the dread. I felt the anxiety. There was the, the fear and trembling, uh, the sickness unto death. Uh, the Socratic irony, which was paralyzing for me, but I kept reading because it's a great read. It's a great book. I want to give you that compliment straight off. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you enjoyed it in spite of everything. <laughs> well, and, and the, the title, right off the bat, the title, Philosopher of the Heart. And in the opening, you say that this, maybe this Kierkegaard as a philosopher of the heart led to what you call a new philosophical style. You actually say, Kierkegaard created a new philosophical style. What was that style? Well, it was a style that was involving fiction and writing about his own life, although he wrote about that in kind of veiled ways. Um, but he, he didn't write systematic philosophical treatises. He invented characters, he invented pseudonyms, um, and explored philosophical questions and also just the experience of being human from a first-person perspective. Um, and that's really what's so distinctive about his writing and why people, why, why readers really connect with it, as, as you hopefully found when you read the book. It's a way, it's a kind of philosophy that that is lived. It's not abstract and, and merely theoretical. It's a kind of philosophy about how to be a human being. And for Kierkegaard, a philosophy that doesn't really focus on the lived life, doesn't focus on how to exist in the world, just remains kind of an abstract game, sort of an, an academic game, correct? Yeah, that's right. So he was quite critical of some of his contemporary philosophers um, who were academics and who were making a living out of teaching and writing, whereas he well, we can now use the term existential, thanks to Kierkegaard. You know, he, he really lived his philosophy in an existential way, and so he was quite critical of theoretical academic philosophy that didn't involve the thinker themselves and didn't engage the whole person, person as an emotional person, as, a, as an existing person who had choices. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he was seen as a philosopher of the heart, because he thought philosophy should 
engage the heart, not just the head, not just the intellect. Now, he was called, quote, philosopher of the heart by someone who was touring Denmark at the time, trying to summarize Denmark's intellectual life. Did a lot of people recognize Kierkegaard as, at the time, this unusual form of philosopher? Yes, certainly. So Kierkegaard was widely read in his own time, and he had people who were really touched by his writing. And interestingly, often women really responded to him and um, felt that he affected them inwardly and on an emotional level. So um, the person who described him as a philosopher of the heart was a a woman, a, a feminist writer called Frederica Bremer, who came from Sweden. But there were also other women who wrote letters to Kierkegaard, having read his works and also having heard him preach in church. And they talked about how he really spoke to their hearts and how how much they felt, how deeply they felt about um, his, his writing. And so, yeah, it was definitely a, a feature of his way of communicating that was talked about at the time. But it's not, uh, we'll be sure, philosopher of the heart, this is not a sentimental version of, of the heart. I mean, one of the things that you point out is one of Kierkegaard's core beliefs was that real joy, genuine happiness lies, I think this is how you put it, lies on the far side of suffering. Is that what a a lesson people took closely? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that that resonated with people. Apparently, as as a in his personal life, Kierkegaard was very good at dealing with people who were suffering, who were suffering from depression, for, exa- for example, or anxiety. Um, but he didn't just console them and try and kind of uh, smooth over the surface of their suffering. Apparently, he used to really help them to see their suffering more clearly. So he was very good at acknowledging suffering. I think he just thought that's part of being human. To really be a human being is to experience the whole range of emotions, the whole uh, spectrum of human experience. And as you say, um, that inc- includes both suffering and, and joy. And Kierkegaard felt that they were related, that if you couldn't plunge into the depths of despair, then you also wouldn't feel the depths of joy either. And both, in a sense, were part of a willingness to really go into the inner life, into the human heart. It's not a sentimental or, or even a romantic way, although he was really influenced by romanticism and he wrote about his own love life. Um, but the human heart for him was a place of great complexity, deep uh, experiences of many different kinds. Well, let's get to one of the issues that always comes up in very quickly in any discussion of Kierkegaard's life. Claire, why couldn't he get married to a lovely young woman who loved him deeply and promised him happiness for the rest of his life? (laughs) I know. Um, Well, that's a very good question. And it's one that Kierkegaard himself kept returning to. Um, I'm not sure if he really understood fully the reasons why he couldn't. And in my biography, I did avoid speculating about causes like, you know, he was epileptic or he was gay or something like that. I mean, people have come up with those kinds of causes. Um, But I just think that after he asked Gina Olsen to marry him, he felt pretty much immediately deep down that that would be making a terrible mistake. He just knew that it was the wrong thing to do. Um, And then he had a whole year of an engagement to her where he tried to make himself... um, accept the engagement and tried to go through with it, but it just became a battle 
Um, so I think we can relate perhaps to that experience where you just feel that something is wrong and that you're making a mistake. And even if you can't produce a clear reason for it, there's still a sense of conscience, I guess, that's telling you that this is just a wrong direction to take. And so, yeah, he did eventually break the engagement, but he kept returning to Regina again and again in his writing and he never forgot her. And she, she remained very important to him and important to his sense of the meaning of his own life. In, indeed. I mean, it, it forms the, the core of a lot of, of, of the writing that he does year for years after this he can't he can't he can't let it go he can, in fact one of the one of the great episodes in your book is when Kierkegaard gets into this debate argument with people writing at a, at a magazine newspaper called the Corsair and they're they're making fun of him they're, I, actually I think the raillery on the part of the Corsair is pretty funny it, it, at times, it it, it, <laughs> it it touched him. It really annoyed him. But uh, they actually accuse him of, is, is it right? They accuse him of using this embarrassing and, and shameful episode with Regina as fodder for his later writing. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, they, they didn't say it outright, but they certainly hinted at that and suggested that. And I mean, you know, in, in, in some sense, they, they had a point, you know, I mean, he, there, there was no question really that Kierkegaard treated Regina badly. And, and that's something that I think he felt very strongly himself. You know, he felt very guilty about what happened. Um, and then he wrote about it. And of course, there are different attitudes to that you can take. You can think, well, you know, yes, he's inventing a new kind of philosophy and he's bringing himself into his work and he's um, reflecting on his own life um, in ways that readers can relate to. So that's a very positive way of thinking about it. But on the other hand, um, you could also, as the Corsair did, take a more negative view and think of him as, as using her or as exploiting her. And um, yeah, so so he didn't. I mean, he's. I, I suppose in my book, I don't. I don't see Kichel as some kind of saintly figure. I think he's he's a flawed human being, and that's one of the things I like about him. I think he's someone who is very earnestly trying to live live the kind of life he thinks he's meant to live. And that's often not easy for him. In fact, it's often very difficult. He's trying to live a spiritual life. Um, but that doesn't mean he's some kind of saintly person. You know, he's, he has all sorts of human failings. But um, I, I, think, I think we all do. And so I, I, I really relate to Kirchhoff and I, I, I prefer his, his complexity and uh, his mistakes to someone who would be you know, more kind of, straightforwardly admirable, perhaps. You know, on page 188, you reproduce a quotation from one of his later books in which he explains something under one of these personae that he adopts, but he says, a depressed person should not torment his wife with his sufferings, but like a man should enclose them within himself. Is that one explanation for why he broke off his engagement? It's yes, it certainly is. So um, he was a melancholy person, 
uh, he he had, I think, quite extreme mood swings. Uh, so he wasn't always miserable. He could be very exuberant and joyful. But yes, he, I suppose, in our in our uh, vocabulary, we might say he, he had a had a tendency to depression. And so I think he felt that he was very. He believed quite strongly that in a marriage, um, the the husband should be very open with each other and should really share the whole of themselves with each other. Um, but then he feared that if he shared the whole of himself with Regina, he would be exposing her to the torments of his soul and that she would be unhappy. So that's that's definitely one reason why he felt it was the wrong thing to do. But it's interesting that he says that the manly thing to do is to enclose yourself within yourself, because some of the people who criticised Kirchhoff for breaking the engagement, and particularly in the Corsair affair when he was mocked in this satirical magazine, they presented Kirchhoff as not man enough to go through with the marriage. They see, they saw it as something that was a kind of lack of masculinity, some kind of deficiency. So it's interesting that he turns that around there and says, well, actually, it was I, w- I did the manly thing by not marrying her. Um, I think that's his way of answering those critics. And he was very sensitive, I think, to those slights on his masculinity. He ended up in an adversarial relationship with his his entire his, his the whole city his entire society to some to some degree right yeah he did he did <laughs> yeah i mean he did, he still he still had good friends that he kept towards the end of his life but yes i mean i think he was an adversarial person as a character you know he he could be very polemical and i think he argued with his brothers and sisters when he was a child and with his father you know he enjoyed debate and that kind of adversarial dynamic um but yes certainly in his later years he launched a attack on the whole danish church for example you know the people who made fun of him in the corsair it's interesting they hurt kierkegaard and Actually, when they saw, I think when they saw how deeply they hurt him, uh, they withdrew. One of them left town for for a time. Another one pulled out of the Corsair, right? Yeah, that's right. So the Corsair affair didn't really end well for anybody. It it certainly wasn't a good thing for Kirchhoff, but also the editors of the Corsair, really, I think, as a direct result of what happened with Kirchhoff, they, they, yeah, they, 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 they left town and they, they gave up editing the Corsair. So I think it was something that, um, that, yeah, no, it, it didn't turn well for anyone. And the, the, the editor of the Corsair describes how he met Kirchhoff on the street. He passed him on the street, gave him this look, um, that just made him realize that he'd done a, a, a terrible thing. And, and, and he went home and decided to, give up the Corsair after that. So Kirchhoff had this very powerful glance, apparently. You know, he, he used to look pe- look at people in a very penetrating way, and they'd feel that he was looking right through them and sizing up their souls. And I think that's ha- that's what happened with uh, Goldschmidt, the editor of the Corsair. And he, yeah, he decided that he had to give up um, editing the journal because it wasn't a particularly, it was it wasn't a particularly um, respectable publication. You know, they, they, they made their living out of mocking public figures, you know. So so I think he, he decided to take a more serious job after uh, after he left the Corsair. Right, right. Claire, I, I wish I had the power of that kind of glance. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, uh, he 
he conducted a, a long-term uh, dispute, critique of the leading Christian ministers in, in Denmark. What did he see was wrong with, with the religious leaders in his country? Yeah, so the leader of the Danish church was a man called Bishop Munster, and he was like, um, well, the, the British equivalent would be the Archbishop of Canterbury, so that you know the, the, the head priest of the Danish church. And he had a very ambivalent relationship to Bishop Munster. He was someone who, as a young man, he revered. He was a very important figure for him. But he came to think more and more that Bishop Munster had a view of Christianity that was too complacent and too comfortable, that really Christianity was about consoling people and saying, well, you know, just do your best, try and be a good person. Um, that's all that's asked of you, rather than thinking about the fear and trembling that Kirchhoff saw in the religious life. Um, and so when Kirchhoff looked back at the example of Jesus, he saw that Jesus as a human being had to pay a very high price for his relationship to God, not only because he was eventually crucified, but before that, you know, his life was often under threat, he was often laughed at and ridiculed and so on. Um, and he thought that Bishop Munster prov provided a sanitized and too comfortable view of the Christian life that was really, had very little to do with the kind of teaching that Jesus himself taught his disciples. So, you know, Jesus told people to give up what they had and to leave their families, whereas the Danish church was a very comfortable bourgeois social institution where priests were married, they had families, they had quite nice jobs, they wore velvet cloaks and, you know, silver uh, medallions around their necks. You know, there was something, there was a worldliness to um, these very successful churchmen that Kirchhoff thought was, yeah, kind of at odds with the message of Christianity, and he became increasingly extreme, you know, towards the end of his life about what he thought true Christianity was and the kind of existential cost he thought that Christianity demanded. And he thought that someone like Bishop Munster just wasn't wasn't paying that existential cost. He was just kind of getting the benefits of having a very respectable job and being revered. You know, Claire, it sounds to me like this guy—he's he, just a troublemaker. I mean, you know, Christianity has triumphed. It, it now dominates society. Why can't Kierkegaard just relax and go with the flow and believe in progress and perform the duties of a good Christian? Come on. <laughs> well, he, he certainly was a troublemaker, and I don't think relaxing was, was his forte. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's quite hard to imagine Kierkegaard relaxing. Um, yeah, so, so, I mean, this is, what's, this is what's so, I think, interesting about him. And the example of Socrates is very in, important here, that he, he saw, Kirchhoff saw himself as a Socrates of Christendom, as a kind of 19th century Socrates, whose job was to be a troublemaker, was to go around asking difficult questions. So yes, absolutely, Kirchhoff was quite deliberate, I think, in, in being a troublemaker. I think a lot of his writing is quite polemical in that way. He's, he's I mean, he can write in a very delicate and very... Um, gentle way, but he can also write in a way that really shocks and shakes people and gets them to look at their lives in fresh ways and to question themselves in fresh ways. And that was what he saw his vocation as, as a, as a philosopher, was to do that. Right. You, you, you entitle one, one section, Socrates of Christendom, and, and Socrates 
was the focus of, or Socratic irony, I should say, was the focus of his academic thesis. The difference being that he didn't want Socratic irony just, just to be critical. It had to have the consequence of leading people toward right, a fuller understanding or, or a stronger commitment to what they what they actually believe. And he was he was going to go all, all the way with it. He he couldn't. This is someone who wasn't willing to make worldly compromises. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's, I think, very admirable, even if it's not the way I live myself or, you know, the way I encourage my friends and family to live. I still think there's something very courageous about Kirchhoff's as you say, his his unwillingness to compromise. Um, And what he really wanted to do, I think, was to awaken people's desire for God and their need for God. And so um, Socrates is famous for saying um, that that he he doesn't know anything, that he he knows that he knows nothing. Um, And so once you have that sense of of not knowing, then that begins the pursuit of knowledge. It makes you want to seek the truth. And similarly, Kirchhoff wanted people to say, well, you know, am I really a Christian? Do I really have a relationship to God? Um, And once they became unsure about that, then that would awaken a desire and a longing to seek God and to have that relationship. So his questioning wasn't just destructive, as you say. I mean, you can compare him with a thinker like Nietzsche, uh, who I think has a more destructive way of calling things into question he's philosophizing with a hammer he's just kind of bringing the whole of western civilization crashing down whereas for Kirchhoff I think it's very different he is trying to awaken people's uh, religious need and religious desire which he thinks is there you know that he thinks human beings do need God but they tend to avoid uh, looking at that need too closely and they just busy themselves with worldly things and distract themselves in all sorts of ways. And so, yeah, so I think he had ultimately quite a noble goal in his philosophizing. Um, but that doesn't mean his questions were very welcome any more than Socrates' questions were welcome. I mean, Socrates ended up being executed. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you don't make yourself popular by being a, a sort of profoundly questioning troublemaker. Right. He... He has a nice uh, condensation that you quote uh, later in the book, and where he calls Christianity is not a doctrine; it is an existence communication. I like that. Yeah. So he thought that Christian doctrines, you know, the list of beliefs um, that Christians sign up to, um, he didn't think that they were unimportant, but he thought that wasn't really the heart or the essence of Christianity. What really mattered was um, how you, um, as an individual, as a human being, relate to God and relate to the teachings of Christianity. You know, how do you appropriate them or take them to heart? Um, how do you communicate Christianity in your own existence? Um, how, do, how do human beings express the truth of Christianity in their own lives? So it wasn't a question of what you believe or or what even is is true, but more, you know, how how do you live? How do you orient yourself in the world? And the parallel in the Old Testament that I find to what you mentioned about the New Testament and Kierkegaard's focus on Christ's suffering, the the passion that he underwent is he goes to one of the most difficult horrifying, really, stories 
in the Old Testament, and that is the the sacrifice of of Isaac. And I mean, people, it, it Kierkegaard's right. It is very hard to look closely at that story, even though it had a happy ending. That, but he, he just pushes that over and over in in one of his earlier books. Wow. Yeah. So he thought that people were so used to that story that it was obviously very familiar and their children were brought up hearing it. And so it, it, it lost some of its power as a story and some of its its horror in a way. And that, you know, yes, you can skip quite quickly to the happy ending, but what was it like for Abraham you know, walking up that mountain with Isaac thinking he was going to sacrifice his son? But also, like, what was it like for Abraham walking back down the mountain with Isaac after that had just happened? You know, yeah, and explaining to his wife, Sarah, like, what have you been doing for the last six days? You know, they, and so, and how, you know, how could Abraham make make himself understood? You know, what? so, so yeah, so Kirchhoff really explores that story in a very existential way and thinks about the fact that Abraham is prepared to lose what's most important to him. He's prepared to give up the whole world in order to, I guess, preserve his relationship to God. But more than that, he's not just giving up Isaac, but he's giving up the very possibility of being understood by anybody. Um, and Kirchhoff is quite um, sort of ambivalent about Abraham in Fear and Trembling. He doesn't just straightforwardly present him as a hero. And he kind of stays with that ambivalence. He doesn't fall down on either side of um, eulogizing Abraham as someone like Luther did, um, or just um, criticizing Abraham and saying he's just a murderer and we shouldn't be following his example, which other readers of that story have done. You know, one thing that may have been hard for you, I'm going to turn to a, a social issue. One thing that may have been hard for you was to try to communicate to readers in the 21st century how Kierkegaard's breaking off his engagement really was a social scandal. Everyone knew about this, and everyone thought that it spoke to Kierkegaard's shame. Was that, was that a challenge for you? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you obviously picked up on it when you read the book, so, <laughs> so I guess I didn't do such a bad job. Uh, um, yeah, so, so yes, of course, in the, in the 19th century, Breaking. I mean, it's bad to break an engagement, you know, now as well, isn't it? It would cause a lot of suffering and disappointment and heartache, and probably also some embarrassment, perhaps. Um, but yeah, certainly in the 19th century, um, it was quite unlikely that after breaking an engagement with a woman, that she would be able to marry again. So it wasn't just, you know, breaking her heart or disappointing her, but it was also really putting her in a very difficult social position and. You know, probably ruining her chances of, of ever getting married, of ever having children. As it happened, fortunately, Regina Olsen did get married um, after she broke up with Kirchhoff and had a very happy and long marriage to her husband. So a bit like the story of Abraham, but Kirchhoff didn't know that at the time, um, just as Abraham didn't know it at the time. Yeah. One of the pathetic episodes in the book is many years later, after Regina had gotten married, to this, this man, is it Friedrich Schlegel? Uh, Kierkegaard wrote her a, a very emotional letter and something of a confession on his part. And he's trying to say, let us at least renew our recognition of one another because they kind of avoided one another uh, from, from that time onward. And he puts that letter inside an envelope with another letter 
addressed to her husband so that it would go to the husband first and he would say to the husband, uh, would you feel that this letter could be passed to your wife? And what did the husband do? Well, yeah, he, he returned the letter to Kirchhoff unopened. Um, so I, I think it was quite usual in the in the 19th century that if a man was to write to a married woman, he would he would send it to her husband. So there, were, could, there could be nothing improper about it. Um, but the story of Kirchhoff and Regina after their engagement broke and after Regina got married is really an amazing story because, as you say, they avoided each other. They didn't speak to each other, but they, they kept seeing each other around. I mean, Copenhagen is quite a small town and they would quite often just see each other on the streets or they'd see each other in church on a Sunday. So she was very much there. He was kind of hyper conscious of her presence and that, that when he did see her, it was an intense experience for him. And I also think, obviously I, I can't know, but I also think that she was very conscious of him too, that it wasn't just in his mind, you know, that she was still this very important figure. Um, because actually at the, at the very end of Regina Olsen's life, Regina lived to you know, quite a, quite a great age and her husband died eventually and then she gave an interview about Kirchhoff and she remembered Kirchhoff as really a very special figure in her life she hadn't forgot him forgotten him and in fact at the end of her life she was talking much more about Kirchhoff than she had about her husband so so you know even though she'd had a happy relationship with her husband I think her connection with Kirchhoff was real and was deep and it was something that they both lived with in Copenhagen through the 1840s and early 1850s, you know, as they kind of went about their parallel lives, um, not touching each other, but very much aware of each other. He was only 40, 41 or 42 when he died. He was 42, I think, yeah. Uh, what, what a remarkable, prolific 10, 12 years <laughs> that, he, that he had uh, and, and writing. Let me let me end, Claire, with a, a maybe it's a psychological question. Why did Kierkegaard write under so many pseudonyms and adopt so many personae and even get irked when people suspect or tried to expose, even though they all knew it was him, he didn't want them to talk about it so much. Why, why write under so many false names? Well, I think it's partly a psychological question. It's partly a literary question. So from a literary point of view, constructing these pseudonyms who were sort of characters and narrators, they weren't just names on the covers of his books. Um, they were characters who each had their own perspective on the questions that Kirchhoff was writing about. So um, he used these characters to personify and dramatize different life views, different approaches to existence. Um, and that's part of what he was exploring in his philosophy, different ways of being a person. So he used the pseudonyms to do that. But also, as you say, psychologically, I think, um, so Kirchhoff was somebody who loved writing. It became the most important thing in his life, I think. Um, his authorship and his, his activity as a writer was so important to him. He loved writing. Um, but he found publication, putting his work out there um, to public judgment, something that was very difficult, um, as many writers do. Um, so I think the pseudonyms helped him to navigate that tension between his own writing, which he loved to do, and then his public um, offering of that work. And so I think by 
he had a lot of anxiety about publishing his books often and worried about whether or not to publish many of his books. Um, and often using a pseudonym was a kind of solution <laughs> to that anxiety that he had. Um, because even though he wanted to be read, of course, like most writers do, he wanted to communicate and, and be read. But he also felt very exposed to uh, put his works, which were so personal, you know, he was really exploring and exposing his soul in his writings. And so to put that um, out there in the public eye, I think it took a lot of courage for him to do that. And um, I think we've all, we can all be grateful to Kierkegaard that he managed to get over that hurdle of, you know, yeah, publishing his books, even though he feared public kind of ridicule and rejection and so on. Well, I, I have to ask one more question on, on that score of the public attention. Claire, would Kierkegaard have been happy with his funeral? <laughs> uh, I, I think he would. I think he would have been pleased that it was so well attended. I think he would have been happy that people were talking about it. It ended up being quite a riotous affair. It was uh, his, his nephew who had some of his Sort of troublemaking tendencies um, can challenge the priest at the grave graveside, and um, so yeah, I think it was a very a very fitting funeral, and, and you know, it, and it also showed, I guess, in in Copenhagen how important Kirchhoff was. You know, so many people, men and women, turned out to Kirchhoff's funeral. You know, they 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 even though he was eccentric and um, you know, in some ways, a difficult person. I think they really recognised how important he was and what a great gift he'd given them in, through his authorship. So, yeah, I think I think he would have been quite pleased, even if he might have pretended not to be. The book is Philosopher of the Heart: The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard. Thank you, Claire Carlyle, for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been really nice to talk to you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.